All right, as we promised at the top of the uh, program, we're now going to go to Los Angeles to speak with our good pal, investigative journalist Lisa Pease, former editor of Probe Magazine and the author of The Assassinations. Welcome back, Lisa. Hey, Doug. Good to be there. The movie Bobby is out, and uh, you've seen it? I've not only seen it, I'm in it. (laughs) one tiny moment as an extra in the background that no one but me will ever notice. (laughs) I see. But But yes, I I saw it at a screening, and Emilio was there and took questions afterwards. And just so people understand, it is not about the assassination. It's a fictional story with the assassination as backdrop. Okay. But it does feature a lot of Bobby's speeches, things that he said on the campaign trail and in the last few years of his life. Um, intercut and overlaid, you know, with some of the scenes. So it's a really good introduction or reintroduction to Bobby Kennedy and what he stood for, for those who may have long since forgotten or never knew. Um, The people in The Ambassador and the focus of the story is entirely on fictionalized characters. Some of them are, we could say, inspired by real people, but not one of them is based on real people. You know, none of the lines or the elements that happen are really based on anything factual. And that was not his goal. I mean, his goal was to do a fictional story, but using this as the backdrop. So it's it's a very, you know, interesting film. I think Emilia is a good writer. There's some great lines and, you know, fun moments and sad moments in the film. It wasn't nearly as sad as I thought it was going to be. It was actually very funny in spots. I mean, he's got a good wit. Frankly, the parts that made me cry the most were just hearing Bobby Kennedy, you know, speaking, because what he had to say was so powerful and so moving. We mentioned at the top of, of, of the hour that uh, that uh, you and I and Mr. McMillan went down to the Ambassador Hotel back in 03, and we're, we went to the actual scene where, uh, well, where Sandy Serrano, the famous uh, eyewitness, described seeing a woman in a polka dot dress fleeing the scene. Uh, does that feature into the, into the that sort of stuff feature into the no, film at all? No, and in fact, I had met with Emilio's researcher, who's now his fiance. I didn't know they were going out at the time, but I'd met with her before filming began, but long after the script had been set. And I specifically tried to, you know, push the idea of at least show a girl in a polka dot dress running out. You don't have right. to explain it. Just put it there because that really happened. And she's like, ah, too late. You know, we don't want to go there. But when I showed her the documents I had. It was one of those few times where I literally saw her jaw hang open in that, oh, my God, look. Right. <laughs> and, and when I caught up with her on the set when I was there to be an extra, which was about a month and a half after our first meeting, she came up to me and she said, the girl in the polka dot dress still haunts me. <laughs> well, let, let's, <laughs> let's just take a minute. You know, we've got a couple of minutes. Let's take a minute to refresh our listeners' memories about our discussion on this before. And who was the woman in the polka dot dress? Well, I'm not sure that we know her name, um, but, but her significance is, is palpable. During the LAPD's investigation, they interviewed literally thousands of witnesses. Many people, I mean, I have like 20 witnesses now, who noticed a girl in a polka dot dress with either one or two dark-haired men, usually, often in the company of Sir Han, is how she was described. And always, whenever people noticed her, they noticed her because she seemed out of place like she didn't fit in. She wasn't in the same celebratory mood as everybody else. Mm -hmm. She and the guy she was with, they just seemed to be in their own world, and it drew people's attention. And, uh, you know, I can kind of track her progress (laughs) through the night, where she went, who she talked to. At one point, she's badgering a guy to get a press pass. To get into the pantry, you either had to be a Kennedy campaign staffer or a member of the press. 
no other people were supposed to be allowed. In reality, a lot of extra people ended up getting into the pantry. But that was the original rule at the start of the night. And the girl was very persistent with this one man, trying to get his press pass to the point where it really annoyed him. And he remembered her having a little turned-up nose, which becomes significant later. Just before the shooting begins, this girl in a white dress with dark polka dots is witnessed by Vincent Piero standing next to Sir Han, talking with him and almost holding him. And, and you know, they were, as if Sir Han was balanced on a tray, a, serving, a stack of serving trays, you know, like waiting. And then she releases him, Sir Han steps out and fires, and the girl runs out what would be the southeast door of the pantry, and then, again, she's witnessed by various people as she's running out that corner. She runs out with another man, a taller man, tall young man in a gold shirt with either dark hair or dark blonde hair, depending on who you believe. They cross uh, diagonally back towards the southwest corner and exit the fire escape steps because the embassy ballroom is actually kind of on the second floor, and you can run down some outside steps to get to the ground level. Where And that's where you and I were, behind yeah. the hotel, right. And so sitting in the crook of the stairs, so to speak, was Sandy Serrano cooling herself because it was a really hot night. And she hears, you know, these two running down and looks at them, and the girl is saying, we shot him, we shot him. And Sandy said, who did you shoot? And the girl says, we shot Kennedy, and keeps running. Now, when the police asked her later, how did she say that? Was it like, Sandy said it was like, good going, like we did it, you know which is significant. So it wasn't like she was in fear. It was like she was happy that this had happened. Now, Sandy Serrano then went on TV, I think within an hour or two after the shooting. I, I've got the times written down. I don't have them in my head. Right. And it um, went, yeah, and it went all over the world. She I mean, was all, live. Everyone, right. everyone heard this story about the woman with the polka dot dress. Right. She made the news for about the next two weeks. You know, in the L.A. Times, there was this big hunt for the girl in the polka dot dress. You know, the story was very public for a while. And, uh, you know, different people were coming forward and saying they saw her, and there were all these stories. But Sandy was, you know, definitely the key one because she was the one that linked her to the crime. Because also Sandy, not, not on TV, well, actually she said this on TV too, she described seeing three people go up into the hotel but only two come back out. The third one she described as Sirhan. So it was as if, and, you know, she didn't know who Sirhan was until after he'd been arrested and booked, but then she did identify that was the guy that was with the girl and the other guy. It's a fascinating story, Lisa, but none of it, this really comes up in, in the movie. None of this whole controversy this over the murder. None of this will be in the movie. Right. In fact, at the screening I attended, the first question after the film was, well, by the way, what about Sirhan? Did he kill him or not? You know, what's the truth there? And I thought that's so funny because it's really not what the film is about, and yet it was the first question on somebody's mind. And that was somebody was not you. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was not me. <laughs> I did speak up later when they mentioned the extras, and I said, "Like me." <laughs> but uh, but it, it's no. a good—it's a good film worth seeing. I take it. Yeah, really, for people who you know haven't heard Bobby Kennedy in a while or have never heard him speak, you know, it's—it's it's very powerful because you know they were in a period where they were in a war that no one felt they should be in. I mean, it's very parallel to our time. You know, they talked about you know the dependence on oil and you know, some of the other issues, and they even talk about the electronic voting issue because the election in 68, the primary, was the first time they had a wide-scale use of new computerized punch card voting machines with huh. Chad. And, 
And it was funny because Walter Cronkite had to explain to the audience it was going to take a lot longer to count the votes this time because they were using computers <laughs> than when they weren't. And I thought that was fantastic for people to see. <laughs> wow. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Exactly. I definitely recommend people see it for that. Now, I'm disappointed as a researcher that there wasn't more truth in it and just one example they do use a busboy character. There was a busboy, you know, who leaned over Kennedy and said the rosary to him and, you know, in the kitchen. And the real character traded and had to take a double shift just for the privilege of taking a breakfast tray to Robert Kennedy's room. Now, that would be fantastic for the movie that Emilio was trying to tell, but since he didn't know that, he takes this same busboy and instead makes him work a double shift and have to give up tickets to go see Don Drysdale at the baseball game. And, you know, so huh. it's like this, it's not nearly as compelling a story when, in fact, the guy was totally in love with Bobby Kennedy and was so thrilled that he was there and, of course, so heartbroken then when he sees his hero shot right in front of him. Wow. It's just a sad case where a little more research would have really helped, but you know, too little, too late. Well, Lisa, since you, you've actually written a book about uh, assassinations, you and Jim Eugenio and a few others uh, collaborated on that. Uh, I want to run this, what's happened to uh, Alexander Litvinenko past you and see what you think. Okay. Now, I, I don't know if you studied this very closely. and I, I haven't. I, I have haven't. not either, but what little research I did has blown me away, and I want to just go through a little bit of it. Okay. Um, this guy is a critic. He's, critis he's criticized uh, the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. He, uh, he goes to a sushi bar after meeting with a couple of uh, Russians and falls ill. He goes to the hospital the same day. They know he's really sick. They're sure he's been poisoned. A lot of theories are circulating about it. They think it might have been thallium, which is a notorious uh, toxin. In fact, they thought it might have been something radioactive, a radioactive, radioactive isotope of thallium, which is kind of a, you know, you can use thallium as a rat poison. If you make it radioactive, it's double trouble. Right. But the hypothesis was finally formed that it may have been polonium-210, which is a right. radioactive isotope. And now they've confirmed that is indeed what killed Litvinenko. But right. so I did a little research on polonium, and I was, I'm, I'm absolutely flabbergasted at w what I've discovered, which I want to share with you and the listening public. Well, I just don't find the whole thing very curious that, uh, you know, that Russia wants to join the World Trade Organization, that Bush thinks that uh, Vladimir is a really a great guy, in mm -hmm. spite of the fact that, uh, you know, this Anna Politskovskaya, yeah, is murdered, shot recently here in October. This guy's critical of, of Putin about, about this assassination of, of the journalist. Then he just, he drops dead from an incredibly bizarre poison. But uh, here's the background data on it. Polonium was discovered by Marie Curie and her husband Pierre in 1897. They named it after her homeland of Poland. The element was discovered after they were investigating the cause of how pitchblende, which is a uranium ore, was radioactive. Um, after she chemically removed the uranium and the radium, which was her other discovery than the stuff that's on watch dials, it was more radioactive than both radium and uranium put together. So this stuff is really potent. It turns out that uh, polonium-210 is so toxic, it's 1,100 times as toxic as cyanide, which is, you know, not a bad poison itself. Ugh, yeah. I noticed on television they got some Russian government authorities, some KGB guys, to say, oh, there's no way the Russian government poisoned this guy. He's small potatoes. There's just, there's just no way. But it turns out the only way you can come up with polonium-210 is to have access to a nuclear reactor. 
Oh, wow. The entire world production of polonium, I mean, the, the Curies refined it chemically out of ore, but nobody makes it that way because that's really tough. Polonium is produced now by bombarding bismuth with neutrons inside a nuclear reactor, and the entire world production is about four ounces, 100 grams a year. So, so the idea that, like, you know, he was assassinated by, you know, just some guys seems, <laughs> seems rather incredible. unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, this sounds obviously like a high level. And, and not just, uh, again, it's like a signal killing. Like, not only are we going to kill him, but this is a message to all our other agents. Don't mess with us. <laughs> So anyway, Lisa, I hope that in your future researches here that you'll, you'll run this one down, and I know I can count on you. Well, just as we're talking, I'm reading articles. It's, it looks pretty bad. But, but here, here's where the plot thickens. Here's the part, as a medical doctor, I'm rather astonished to discover. Surgeon General C. Everett Koop stated oh. some years back that radioactivity, rather than tar, accounts for at least 90% of all smoking-related lung cancers. What? The centers, the follow, follow me. The Centers for Disease Control have concluded that Americans are exposed to far more radiation from tobacco smoke than from any other source. Because if you go to your periodic table, and I know that a lot of our listeners, of course, will have one handy, you'll find that polonium is in the same group as oxygen, sulfur, selenium, tellurium. In other words, it lacks a couple of electrons to be a noble gas, so it's, it, it basically is the equivalent of oxygen or sulfur biologically, which makes it an unbelievable poison. If you oh, can get wow. a substance of it entered into the body, it then goes everywhere. Mm-hmm. And this stuff, it's incredibly radioactive. It, it'll, it'll actually evaporate um, within th- half of the sample will evaporate within three days unless you keep it in a sealed container. And well, Lisa, here's the beauty of being on a, on a UC affiliated station. We can get scientific here and, and figure that we're not going to lose our audience. Polonium emits alpha rays, which are basically helium nuclei, which are kind of like you know, which are like sending out uh, Mack trucks among among radiation. It's got a half life of 138 days. But what, what's blowing me away is 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 the potency of this stuff. A milligram of polonium 210 admits as many alpha particles as five grams of radium, which is a lot. It's such a heat producer that the, uh, it, they used it on, on the Lunacod rovers deployed on the surface of the moon to keep the internal components warm during the uh, you know, two-week-long lunar nights. Wow. A single gram generates energy at the rate of 150 watts. So one gram of this stuff's like a 150-watt light bulb. I'm sort of amazed by this, but to get back to this whole bit about radiation, this nasty stuff is the only component, polonium-210, the only component of cigarette smoke that's produced cancers by itself in laboratory animals by inhalation. Mm. It's been noted that lung cancer rates among men in the U.S. climbing from a rarity in 1930 to the number one cancer killer in 1980 in spite of an almost 20% reduction in smoking during that same period. But during that same period, the level of polonium-210 in American tobacco has tripled, coincidental with the use of phosphate fertilizers by tobacco growers. Apparently, the calcium phosphate chemically accumulates uranium, which slowly reduces radon, which sticks onto the leaves when, it's, when, it, when it deposits a polonium. It, it decays into polonium, deposits on the leaves, 
And again, C. Everett Coop thinks that this is what is causing lung cancer, not the tars and tobacco. I was startled to see this. Wow, that is interesting. So we need to return to this subject in the future. Yeah, that needs investigation. Cigarette smoking, 30% of all cancer deaths. If Coop's right, then basically 27% of, of cancer deaths in the U.S. can be related to this compound. But anyway, it's horrible to contemplate that uh, before he went, uh, you know, Litvinenko had an idea that, you know, this is, that he'd been poisoned with something really, really toxic. Right, right. And he wrote to uh, Putin accusing him of having ordered his death, as I understand it. Well, what do you think? <laughs> I think he's probably right. He's yeah. a spy. He knows how these things work. You know, I mean, obviously it's speculation and that kind of stuff is extremely hard to prove. But, you know, from all you've said, certainly no, you know, man on the street's going to get a hold of that. No. Pretty, pretty high-level hit there, which begs the question of what he knew that they didn't want to get out. Or, as you say before, just to send a message to dissidents. Yes. If you want to, like, write books, you want to be critical of the regime, well, you better be careful about getting some polonium in your tea. Yeah. But anyway, Lisa, always a pleasure. We'll have to go see the movie Bobby, and uh, I'll, I'll recognize you. You won't recognize me unless you have a pause button on a DVD player or something. Yeah, we'll we'll have to have a Lisa P. spotting party sometime. (laughs) That'd be hilarious. (laughs) All right, well, Lisa, let's reconvene here in January. Sounds good, Doug. Take care. All right. Would like to note, uh, as we close out this section, uh, the headline from the November 20th edition of the Sacramento Bee, Pact puts Russia closer to WTO. Writing in the Associated Press, Alex Nicholson noted that the trade deal with U.S. was one of the last obstacles to joining Global Group. Dateline, Hanoi, Vietnam. Advancing Russia's position as an emerging economy, a trade accord signed Sunday with the United States removes the last major obstacle to Moscow's membership in the WTO. It uh, marks a bright spot in the two countries' relations that have been marred by disagreement over Iran's controversial nuclear program and Washington's fears of a rollback of democratic freedoms under Russian President Vladimir Putin. Said U.S. Trade Representative Susan Schwab in Vietnam, I'm very pleased to be here today to have the opportunity to celebrate this very important milestone as Russia moves one important step closer to becoming a member of the WTO. Yes, apparently uh, President Vladimir Putin's creative use of chemistry, reminiscent of the old Monsanto motto, better living through chemistry, uh, is no obstacle here. We would remind you that uh, the Ukrainian President Viktor Yushchenko uh, appeared to have gotten the second highest dose of of dioxin in history and somehow managed to live. Uh, this picture in the beach shows a real smiling George Bush, smiling Vladimir Putin, and uh, and Chinese President Hu Jintao wearing what appear to be mumus. And they do look rather self-conscious in what the article describes as Vietnamese smocks. I got a kick out of the British writer that uh, described Bush's trip for trade purposes to Vietnam as draft dodger finally goes to Vietnam. We would remind you that when George Bush Jr. joined the National Guard, there was a box he could check as to whether he was willing to go to Vietnam, and uh, apparently he left that box unchecked. We feel pretty confident here at Radio Parallax. That was just an oversight on his part. And a final item for this segment, an article sent us by Pablo, 
repeating uh, what Helen Kennedy, correspondent for the uh, New York Daily News, had to say about a uh, an emotional defense of his son by President George Herbert Walker Bush. Apparently, the former president was at a leadership conference at the United Arab Emirates when he was asked the following question. We do honor Americans, and I believe that they are highly respected in our country. However, we do not respect your son, and we do not respect what you are doing all over the world. Asked by college student Niveen Al-Rumizi. According to the Daily News, uh, Al-Rumizi's comment was roundly cheered by the business and political leaders gathered in once American Abu Dhabi. The elder Bush, it was reported, just looked stunned. In the speech he had just given, Bush had stressed how proud he was of both his sons, the president, and Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and how much it hurt him when they're criticized. Said the elder Bush, we presume in his annoying, nasally voice, my son's an honest man. He's working hard for peace, and how come everybody wants to go to the United States if the United States is so bad? This prompted another audience member, an American expat, to tell Bush, I think the remarks that you made about why people need to go to America to be very hostile and make the country look even worse. Then another audience member spoke up and said he thought American wars were designed to open markets for U.S. companies, which drew more cheers and whoops. At this point, uh, Bush grew testy. I think that's weird and nuts, he said, to suggest that everything we do is because we're hungry for money. I think that's crazy. I think you need to go back to school. We would remind you, dear listener, that the former president is a member of the Carlyle Group, the 11th largest defense corporation in the world. So we here at Radio Parallax are are not certain that it's weird and nuts to suggest that uh, American wars might be designed to open markets for U.S. company. We note this week, as reported in The Australian, that the Carlyle Group is poised to acquire Taiwan's Advanced Semiconductor Engineering, the world's largest chip packaging and testing company. This would be a $6.4 billion buyout that would set a new landmark in private equity deals in the technology industry. No, we haven't done a study of uh, the financial status of the Carlyle Group before the Iraq War and after, but, uh, you know, but I think we need to do that now. And by the way, the opinions expressed on Radio Parallax do not necessarily represent those of the radio station or any of our sponsors. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Stay tuned for more.